Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And yeah, here we are. Another episode. Back again. I think this is going to be our... 20th? 20th episode. Oh my god. Wow. That is really exciting. I almost say we're like a quarter there, but a quarter to where? (laughs) 80? That's wrong. Round and around we go where we stop. Nobody knows. Two dimes worth. Yeah, we love not just one dime, but two. And that's who we are, two dimes. <laughs> We're not just going to give you our 10 cents, but our 20 cents. That's correct. I think the saying is your two cents. Oh, fuck. But you know oh, what? We have so too. much sense that it's it's two dimes worth. That's precisely that. <laughs> and we have quite the movie for number... Number 20, yeah, we 20, really do. Yeah. This one was one that we knew we were going to do. Was requested. Yes, was requested. I needed some time to gear up for it. So you've heard about this. Yes. Meme City. (laughs) (laughs) This movie is Meme City. I've seen so many memes. And I've also seen a lot about it, just positive or I would say constructive criticism surrounding the film. It's definitely different than a lot of the other movies we've covered so far, just in terms of how bright and colorful it is and how almost not in your face it is about certain things. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, doesn't have a lot of gore, doesn't have a lot of jump scares. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Not even a lot of suspense, I would say. This is a pretty slow burn. It is. And if you're listening to this podcast, you already know what the movie is, and that is Midsummer. 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 Which we are recording on a very dark and dreary evening. Very opposite to the feel this movie puts out. Oh my gosh. It is probably one of the most cinematically striking films I've seen in a while. For sure. It's gorgeous. Really, and really interesting camera angles too. And this film was written by, written and directed by Ari Aster. Yes, Ari Aster definitely directed it. Not sure if he wrote it, but... Ari Aster is amazing. I yeah, like so him a lot. Is this, I know that this was his second full length feature. At least that was registered as horror. Yes. Yes. And you've seen Hereditary. I have seen Hereditary. So did you notice any similarities between like the way that both of these films are shot at all? Midsummer just seems so unique. I was wondering if it was kind of his calling card. I mean, in terms of quality, they match up for sure. And they're night and day in terms of the color schemes and I would say the mood. But I think they both are able to really pick a character and zero in on them in the way that we really see us zooming in on Danny and the way Mm. that she's processing a lot of things in this movie. They do that with a character in Hereditary as well, although they change perspectives a little more than they do in Midsummer. You know, Hereditary kind of takes a portrait of a family recovering from loss, and this is really just an individual recovering from loss. Mm. Mm -hmm. But you could tell definitely the themes of loss and trauma and just all of the things he knows just how to get out of his actors and he chooses the right people for the jobs and he's able to just tell the story in such a way where it's both relatable and fantastical. He's just able to really take a situation that a lot of people go through in the case of the first movie, you know, a loss of a sibling. And in the case of the second movie, a breakup, if you really think about it, Mm -hmm. of what it's about and just really find a way to bring the fantastical in in a way that you still feel as though you can relate to every character in the movie, even though 
I don't know about you, but we're not going to Sweden for a midsummer <laughs> um, ceremony anytime soon. But I think we've all been at least feeling a portion of what Danny has felt throughout this movie. Yeah, definitely. I do have a little blurb here, actually, from an article titled Midsummer Explained, the filmmakers unpack the sex, rituals, and shocking ending. And this is from the Los Angeles Time by Mark Olson. And he writes basically that hereditary fused the occult trauma of Rosemary's baby with the family drama of ordinary people. And for Midsummer, kind of coming after this movie... Aster has created a conjoined hybrid of the Wicker Man-style folk horror with the painful examination of heartbreak as in modern romance. Aster says that Midsummer quote, sort of makes literal those feelings where a breakup can feel apocalyptic, like the world is ending. And so there's a pleasure in taking a movie to that extreme. Even though Aster was working through his own breakup at the time, he was crafting the movie. He says that, quote, nobody in the movie is a surrogate for my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> it's not like this is what I want to do to my ex, but there is a feeling of you want to set fire to that part of yourself and that part of your life and move on clean because it's so painful. Damn. I know. Isn't that perfect? I mean, I can't imagine being Ari Aster's ex <laughs> and watching this movie and being like, what the fuck did I just get out of? And it's probably good that I did. I feel like Ari Aster's ex must feel really similar to Olivia Rodrigo's ex. Probably. Or any of Taylor Swift's exes. I feel like being like the root of somebody's artistic epiphany, if it's a negative experience, <laughs> could be. I, I imagine that would be a very complicated position to be in. It's either guilt-stricken or almost ego-boosting. Yeah, I guess, depending. Depending on how you look at it. Yeah, but um, I guess maybe for this, since it is so symbolic in many ways, but it is also weirdly realistic in a lot of ways, I guess. I don't know. Well, it's realistic in the sense that it's somewhat loosely based off of real people, right? It is. I actually have a little bit about that. The origins of Hargas, which is the place in... Sweden, Sweden, that the movie takes place. So basically the concept for the movie, and again, this is from the same article that I got the previous quote, again, by Mark Olson. Midsummer began when Swedish producer Patrick Anderson and his friend Martin Karkvist worked together and wanted to create a Swedish set folk horror tale. And after researching with them, Ari Aster developed his version to take the script down a path following a tumultuous breakup. So that's kind of like what his artistic vision added here, this like breakup lens. Because of Anderson and Carl Kvist's imaginative influence, they are credited with, quote, concept of Hargis in the film's credits, which is an interesting credit. Despite Swedish roots, it is important to note that, quote, this is not Swedish history. This is folklore. Aster says some of the rituals, however, are true. So a fellow Svensson said on the phone in this interview from Olson's article regarding the rituals depicted in the movie, having at least some basis in historical fact, such as the oversized mallet, which was used um, a couple of times in the film. And he says the mallet, we did a replica of the mallet from a museum we saw in Stockholm. When they jump from a cliff, that was a custom until not so long ago for elderly people but they mainly got pushed. <laughs> and many of the cliffs are now historic sites for everyone to see. So it's true, all of it. And that's the scary part. Damn. Yeah. So ritualistic suicide, massive, massive mallets. These are things that have a root in history, which is crazy. And, you know, especially when we're watching a movie like this, 
I think there's a earned skepticism when you see that an American filmmaker is taking on the cultural norms of another place and examining whether our viewpoint is inherently meant to be ethnocentric because, of course, when we're looking at something like that and it's old people getting pushed off of cliffs to their untimely death because they turned 72, yeah, that sounds a little horrific (laughs) based on the traditions that we were raised with. But I also, you know, try to, like, retrain that part of my brain to just kind of be like, all right, you live in a country that X, Y, and Z, a country that Donald Trump <laughs> succeeded in to presidency in, that this happened, that that happened in. So that's not to say that the things in the movie aren't horrific, but I think it's intentional that you're bringing Americans in as the scope of which we're viewing these things. Because if we were just watching a horror movie that was based in Sweden, based on these timely folk tales, and nobody was reacting I don't think it would be a horror movie at that point. Mm -hmm. It would just kind of be, this is how things are. But because you're sending a bunch of American graduate students into a place to inherently research and examine the ways in which these ceremonies are run, it's set up to be horrific and it's set up to be grandiose. So while I am appreciative of the fact that it's based in history, I think it'd be a little irresponsible if it wasn't. I think it's also important that he's framing this through the typical American viewpoint. I love a little bit of folklore by Taylor Swift, too. (laughs) I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. I'm pretty sure I used that joke before on here. One of us did. I just, you know what? It's so good that I will use it twice. I use most of my good content at least twice, maybe thrice. Who knows? Let's hope no one's marathoning our content at the moment. <laughs> so let's get into it. Yeah. Okay. So the film opens up. We have sort of a tapestry that appears on the screen, has a lot of images, artistic renditions of some winter scenes, summer scenes, people dancing, a skull, like a lot of different sorts of images. And this image, as well as many others we see throughout the movie, serves as a sort of prophetic foreshadowing of some of the events to come. So that tapestry sort of parts down the middle like a theatrical curtain, and we are thrust into the story um, with varying dark winter shades shots and some ethereal Swedish singing. I was literally, I was like Twilight-esque establishing shots with singing because (laughs) like literally with the opening, if you took away the Swedish singing in the background, I was like, this is Forks, Washington. Like it's just with how like rainy and snowy and just blue everything looked. Can I just say, I don't know how this happened because I was never a Twilight fan. I didn't read the books and part of it was because Everyone else was doing it, so I didn't want to read those books. And then when the movies came out, I didn't really enjoy them very much. How come on TikTok, I have so many videos on there that have to do with Twilight. (laughs) My For You page has thrown so many Twilight videos my way, and I don't understand what I'm doing to to deserve it. You're having a teenage renaissance at this point. This is your second chance. Still trying to get me. It's trying to get me. Well, maybe I will cave. Twilight aside... Those images and the singing is interrupted by a phone ringing, and then we are introduced to our main character, Danny, who is played by Florence Pugh, and if I may say, does an amazing job throughout this entire film. Just her performance, I think, really is what sows the severity of what the characters are going through and what she, in particular, is going through. 
her phone call is to her parents and we hear the recording of a voicemail that she leaves to them that conveys that she received a concerning email from her sister Terry mm-hmm. and that she just wanted to check in with them to see that all was well because the email kind of scared her a little bit. And you see her after she leaves that voicemail really arguing with herself whether she wants to pick up the phone again to maybe call back or to call someone else. And she ends up calling her boyfriend, Christian. And he seems to reluctantly answer her phone call. And Danny's playing it cool. She's just like, hey, how are you? What are you up to? Not really letting on that she's bothered. But after a bit of a beat of silence, Christian does ask about the sister thing. And again, sort of reluctantly. And she kind of breaks a little bit and says, you know, she's not answering. I'm nervous. My parents didn't answer either. This message seems different. But Christian comes back. She does this every day. And only because you let her, you know, she's only going to keep doing this for attention if you keep giving it to her. And Danny seems to respond to this. She says, you know what? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Their phone call ends. And then we move on. Right. And it's revealed through this conversation that Danny's sister has bipolar disorder. So from there, you hear her calling a unnamed friend on the phone. And this friend doesn't really return again. It's a girlfriend on the phone. And she's kind of freaking out, psychoanalyzing everything that Christian said on the phone, that she thinks that she's too much and it's pushing him away. And the friend is just really trying to be supportive and saying that, you know, if he loved you, he would be there for you. But you can really tell that it's sowing the discomfort that Danny does not feel comfortable in the relationship that she has with Christian. She kind of knows that her and what she's going through and perhaps her mental health struggles are taking a toll on her and Christian's relationship. And she is feeling the compulsive need to repress and step back and not include him as much in her problems because she kind of feels like he's just about done with her, really. Yeah. And cut into that scene where Danny speaks to her friend on the phone. We see Christian talking to his friends, sort of at, I guess, a restaurant they're eating dinner together, sort of talking to them about, you know, him being unhappy in the relationship. And really, his friends are sort of the ones that are pushing the conversation. Like, dude, you've been unhappy here for like a year. What are you doing? Like, you got to end it. And Christian saying, you know, what if I regret it? What if I can't get her back? So, you know, kind of expressing some some valid concerns, you know, that might come with any sort of breakup. But we do see that mutually now there is a divide in this relationship and there's some communication struggles happening here. And throughout the rest of the movie, I think it's easy for the audience to take Danny's side because she's the journey that we're really following here. But it's not remiss to say that Christian's in a hard place because it's obvious that he knows that she leans on him a bit too much and he feels indebted to just kind of see her through whatever she's going through because it's revealed later that they've been in a relationship for almost four years. Mm -hmm. He can't tell if what she's going through is just kind of maybe a phase or maybe just like people growing apart, people changing. This is where we're introduced to Christian's friend group. So we have Mark, who is like the asshole of the group. (laughs) Who Um, provides so much iconic comic relief. He is is clearly not supportive of the relationship. He says something to the tune of, how about you go get a girlfriend that actually likes sex and doesn't put you through a million hoops every day? Yeah, that's pretty spot on. (laughs) And then you have 
Josh, who is our kind of more astute scholar of sorts. He seems to be taking the grad program they're in very seriously. And he's openly critical to Christian that Christian is perhaps not taking the program that they're in seriously. You get the sense that they are in either a master's program or a doctorate program for anthropology mm-hmm. and that Christian's relationship has been detracting from his focus on his thesis. And then you also have Pele. And Pele is a Swedish exchange student who is also in the program with them. And he seems to be the most indifferent in terms of his opinion on Danny. Yeah, we don't really see too much of him in that original scene. I feel like Christian's sort of OG friends that have known him longer have yep. the most to say in this case. But that is who is surrounding him. Right. And we cut back to Danny on the phone with her friend. She looks down. She's getting a call from an unknown number. Cut back to Christian. Gets a call from Danny. He picks it up. And there is just like wailing and screaming on the other end of the phone. Danny saying, no, 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 no. And of course we know that it's because she has found out that something terrible has happened to her family. Right. So we see Christian enter her apartment and Danny is sobbing and she is inconsolable. And Christian's holding her as she sobs. And you see a look in his eyes that he kind of knows that he is stuck now. You got the feeling that maybe he was working up the courage to maybe end things that night. But after she gets word of this tragedy, he knows that he is kind of stuck in a place where he is. And that's a very hard position to be in. It makes me think of people who like stay in relationships because the holidays are coming up. When oh you, my like, God. Yeah. Like, like, you know, things are done and Ugh. you know, things serve you no purpose, but you just don't want to like do it close to their birthday or do it close to Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. But the camera pans out in a really cool shot and it's revealed what had happened. You see a firefighter turning off a car in an enclosed garage and you follow a set of pipes or tubes that have been strewn throughout the house and you come to find out that Terry, Danny's sister, has killed herself and her parents via carbon monoxide poisoning and it is presumed that it is due to her unstable mental state And obviously, just to speak to that informally, the person I was watching this with was very critical of the choice to make the thing that traumatized Danny settle on the shoulders of a bipolar diagnosis, right? Obviously, a lot of mentally ill people, or I should say the majority of mentally ill people, don't have thoughts of harming others. Um, It's a personal experience. That's not to say that there aren't experiences where people who are suffering from mental illness don't harm others. But I think something that this does and something that I think maybe doesn't get center stage for the rest of the movie is the idea of a family member's mental illness how that impacts their family, how that impacts the people around them. And, you know, we get to see Danny really navigating the aftermath of not only losing her sister, but losing her parents Mm -hmm. and how someone's mental illness, like what that looks like to the people who love them. And I think that's an interesting perspective, being that sometimes horror likes to exploit mental illness as knife wielding or murderous people. But I think this is, you know, a different take, whether it's, tasteful or not i feel like it would be interesting if one day they ended up doing a prequel to this just because 
you know, watching that introduction and then following that montage through the crime scene, of course, we're moving in slow motion. We have the red and blue flashing lights, the firefighter moving very slowly throughout the house, the slow revealing of the crime scene and the extent of the crime scene. It feels like that is the horror story. Yeah, because you really get imagery of Terry had duct taped the end of this pipe to her mouth. Like she was very intent on not surviving. So it would be interesting to kind of see. Yeah, you're right. To at least characterize her beyond, oh, she has a history. yeah. Yeah. And of course, I think the scene does really well to contrast with the rest of the movie because it is very, I think, a lot more stereotypically horror than what we see later. It's very dark. It's wintertime. Slow motion. Of course, the graphic scene with the, I would say, a little bit more twisted imagery of, of Terry with the tube in her mouth. Her parents, she just duct tapes the hose under the door mm-hmm. and, you know, they die peacefully in their sleep. But for her, I mean, it's just like this layer there that I think is, is so upsetting and worth more of a story, I'd say. Yeah. The person I watched it with likened it to Split. Where it's... I haven't seen that. I haven't seen it either, but just the idea of... I love James McAvoy. He's dreamy, Mm -hmm. but the idea of using mental illness as a plot device. And in this case, it's, you know, it it is a plot device, but it's also just like a singular trait. That is all we know about Mm -hmm. Terry is that Danny's sister is bipolar and like that. And that is that. I like to think the way that the rest of the movie goes doesn't hearken on Terry that much. It's more so on Danny's personal experiences and how she deals with her trauma. So off we go to do that. Yeah. So we cut to about, I would say, three or so months later. We can see some green on the trees. It looks to be about spring. And Danny is laying in a bed, sort of facing the wall. We It's daytime, though. We get the sense that she's sleeping. Christian comes in the room. We I think we're kind of gathering that they're living together at this point. I think so. Yeah, I don't know if they were before, but I definitely think they are now. Oh. We'll assume at the minimum that Christian has been spending a lot of his time there because it becomes quickly apparent that she has some separation anxiety and mm. feels very attached to him at yes. this point. So he is leaving the room. She kind of turns around. Where are you going? Oh, I'm just going to this party. She says, oh, I'll come. He says, no. Like, are you sure you've gotten enough sleep? Are you sure you're good? But like, again, it's like midday. It's nighttime, probably. It's probably like... I mean, if he's going to a party, it's got to be close to evening. Yeah, dinner time. She says, no, I'll come, I'll come. He says, okay. But again, that's sort of separated sense between the two of them. They're at the party and you can tell that Danny's not present. Like she's there, but the audio is very distorted. She is barely listening. And the only thing that she hears is when Mark and Josh start talking about Sweden and saying that, yeah, we all just got our tickets. And she turns to Christian and is like, oh, yeah, in which he does a lot of backpedaling. But essentially what was revealed is that they are going to Pele's home village for a midsummer celebration because Josh is doing his thesis on midsummer celebrations. So they were all invited to go back with Pele for a month in the summertime to experience this and for Josh to be able to study it and Christian is going, but he did not tell Danny this information. No. And pretty shortly after that conversation, we see a brief clip of the two of them sitting silently in the car on the way home. And then we see them enter the apartment and Danny sort of, I guess, confronts him about it. Like, when were you going to tell me? 
but very calmly. Like she doesn't, there's nothing aggressive about the way she approaches it. He immediately is, you know, continues backpedaling, backpedaling. And he gaslights her, essentially, uh, makes her sort of feel that she is the one that's in the wrong for questioning him. At one point, he says, I'm sorry. Obviously, supposed to say he's not sure what he should be sorry for, that he didn't do anything wrong. But then it gets to the point where she says, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're going to have so much fun on this trip. It's going to be great. I'm sorry. I'm excited for you. I don't need an apology. I just got confused. Then I'm sorry. I'm sorry I made you feel this way. When really, she makes it clear that she did not want him to go. She just wanted to be told. Yeah. And I mean, he'll be there. The plan is first in Pele's hometown and then to other countries around Europe for about a month and a half. So it's it's a chunk of time. And especially if they've been living together, you think that's something that would have come up very naturally as a plan in the near future because they're leaving in two weeks. Exactly. But you can tell that Christian is almost trying to use this as a point of contention because he's trying to convince her that he mentioned it. And again, that gaslighting. And he even tries to leave. He's like, well, you know, maybe I should go. And this is where Danny completely steps down and ends the night by supporting and engaging him in his next steps when he should be doing the same for her by staying home from Sweden. Mm -hmm. Because she ends up asking him like, oh, well, like, wouldn't this be good for your thesis? And he's like, well, I don't have a thesis. You know that. And she's like, but couldn't this be inspiring? And couldn't Mm -hmm. this be so fun for you? So she completely takes her own emotions off the table and tries to engage him in a motivational conversation as to why this is a good decision for him. And I wrote, like, she wants to be mad, but will not put herself in a place to lose him, even if it means not standing her ground. Right. And I think a lot of that has to do with her own insecurity about what she is putting on Christian. And we saw in that phone call in the the beginning of the movie, she already feels like she puts too much on him. And we also know from the conversation with Christian and his friends, he is not emotionally invested in this. So it's just kind of like a weird dynamic. And for me, I felt like this was the point of no return. Like, the way you you mentioned like Christian was kind of using this as as sort of maybe like a jumping off point into maybe breaking up. I feel like we see that. Maybe I should just go. Maybe this, maybe that. But Danny doesn't meet any of those sort of challenges because she doesn't want this relationship to end like he does. And I think instead of directly ending it himself, he's trying to like make it her idea to end the relationship. So maybe he doesn't feel like the bad guy. But of course, that indirect communication does not work here because they want different things. Exactly. Like, maybe he was waiting until, like, the day before he left for Sweden to tell her Mm. so that she couldn't buy a ticket and come along. Mm. Spoiler alert. Uh Uh-huh. Because she ends up coming along. She does end up coming along. We get a scene in Josh or Mark's apartment afterwards where Christian says, by the way, I invited Danny to Sweden, but she's not coming. Yeah. I invited her and she accepted, but she's not coming. And you guys all said that you wanted her to come, but she's not coming. Mark doesn't hide his distaste. Danny comes up to the apartment and she pulls Christian aside. And Pele and Danny actually have a nice moment where she compliments some of his artwork and asks more about his home village. And they have like a very nice conversation. And he is the only one to say, I'm glad you're coming. Yeah. I was happy to hear that you're coming. But... Pele uses this opportunity to express his condolences for what happened to her. And Danny can't handle any talk of her family. 
she immediately crumbles and runs to the bathroom to begin sobbing. And this is one of my favorite shots of the film. It's an awesome, like, overhead shot where you see Danny opening the door to the bathroom. And when she closes the door behind her, she is in the bathroom on the airplane mm-hmm. having a similar anxiety attack or meltdown because she just is not in check with her emotions. And quick, before moving on, I do just want to say, I think it's interesting how Christian sort of forces his friends to feel a certain way and react a certain way to this situation. I feel like a lot of times we see him with Danny trying to frame the way she's reacting to things, whether it's through gaslighting or or focusing on certain details. And he does the same with his friends. So it's just kind of like a pattern of communication I think he has. Not to excuse it. And he does this later in a scene with Josh. Where, I was just about to say yeah, that, yeah. Uh-huh. So he does this. And not by any sense do we get the feeling that he's a womanizer as much as he is just very immature and doesn't like to feel like a bad guy. He doesn't want in any way to feel like he's a piece of shit. He doesn't want his friends to think that. He doesn't want Danny to think that. But by kind of denying people their opportunity to feel certain ways, like he does end up becoming a dick after all. He can't accept that he is the cause of anybody else's discomfort or pain, which you would think makes a good guy. But... It doesn't make you a great guy. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's where we get into the territory of good guys versus nice guys. That's exactly that. So next scene we see, they are riding to Pele's village in a car where there is a really trippy scene where the car is driving on the top of the screen, like completely flipped upside down. So as they are entering Hargas, you definitely get the feeling that they are entering a new world or a different dimension. Mm-hmm. Or at the very least, it's framing Danny's disorientation of just being in a brand new place with no family, no real connection to her boyfriend. But they end up stopping in a field where Pele meets a bunch of his family members. So I guess this is sort of part of the custom that in Pele's community, when you reach the, quote, summer part of your life, that's when you're allowed to leave the community and then come back. So I think part of this tradition is everyone sort of meets outside the village and then returns together. And we meet Ingmar, who is one of Pele's friends, and Simon and Connie. And they are two folks that Ingmar has brought with him from England and his studies in England. So much like Mark, Christian, and Josh were brought along with Pele, same thing with Simon and Connie. And then they all decide to do drugs. Mushrooms. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't know what kind of drugs. Are they mushrooms? They are mushrooms. They are mushrooms? Yeah. Danny is reluctant because she feels the need to get her footing first. And this is where we see that Christian is actually a decent guy in the broad strokes because he understands that she doesn't want to feel singled out and she just needs a little more time to adjust. She's not unwilling. She just needs a little more time. So he tries to get his friends to go along and take without him. But Mark being an asshole (laughs) is like, you can't dose at a different time than us. Otherwise, we're gonna have separate trips. (laughs) Yeah. But it's a bitch. It is a bitch move. So then Danny, of course, feels like she's the one holding Christian back. She's holding the group back. So she says, you know, it's fine. It's fine. I'll take it. And also, yeah, there are some really nice moments with like Christian and Danny here. He's not evil at all by any stretch. Um, And we do see him trying to be attentive to her at certain parts and like putting his arm around her and trying to be comforting to her and experience this together. So, yeah, we do see some nice, nicer moments, I guess, between the two of them. So they're all drugged in a field. (laughs) 
Mark can't handle his shit. He's like, the sky is moving. Why is it doing that? Which is like so ironic that he is the one that is bitching when he was the one that forced everyone to take drugs at the same time. He, you know, starts going over some like platitudes that you do when you trip, (laughs) I imagine. Ending with one that says, you guys are like my family, like my real family. And this triggers Danny in a very bad way where she feels the need to run off to calm herself down. And anybody who has experienced like high levels of anxiety before, like I think this scene, whether she is drugged or not, the way that she's talking to herself, she's like, you're okay, you're okay, Mm. you're okay, you got this you know, just calm down, just breathe. Like, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. But she can't calm herself down. Mm -hmm. And eventually she ends up waking up in the field. It's still light outside, I guess, in this part of the globe in this season that it's light outside for a really long time. It never really gets fully dark. It's like opposite of like Antarctica or Alaska, wherever it is, it's like, it doesn't get light out. This place doesn't get dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I guess seasonal it's crazy how the the earth is <laughs> the earth is so crazy you guys it's crazy how the sun works it's a star tune into our spin-off podcast about how crazy the world is <laughs> but anyway yeah she wakes up in a field christian is there we get the sense she's been asleep for a while everyone's been waiting for her to wake up before they can go the rest of the way into hargus i also noted that there wasn't a level of concern from him and she's like how long have i been out and he's like we found you here a couple hours ago i was like what do you mean you found me here yeah like there was no concern like he seems more mildly annoyed that she is delaying the trek to hargus and not the fact that she ran off, hid in an outhouse, saw her dead sister in the mirror, uh-huh. and then, like, raced into the forest to eventually pass out. <laughs> like, the level of concern just isn't heightened there, but He anyway. almost seems more frustrated that, that his friends are annoyed. Because yeah. at this point, Christian has really no stake in this trip other than he knows the people who want to go n- and study this. And he's just kind of along for the ride. And now Danny is there, too. So I feel like he feels a little bit responsible for her because his friends are pissed. So eventually they make it into Hargas, and we do see that this is even more isolated than we realized. They had been in this field, they did their drug trip, and then they walked the rest of the way into this community. So it is very isolated. At least a couple hours you get the sense that they had to trek, and there's no vehicles. So they are really kind of trapped in this area. And if you are not one of the locals, you don't really know what the path out is. So mm-hmm. that's made evident. However, upon entry to this community is the first time we see Danny smile in the movie. And that's Mm. something I noted is she really sees this wide open space and all of these colors and all of these women. Because Mm. I noted that Danny doesn't have any in-person female friendships in this movie until this point. Because Mm -hmm. her sister and her parents are presumably far away or at least not near her. And then the girlfriend that she talks to on the phone, like, we don't even ever get her name. So, Mm. like, her relationships with other women, like, you can just tell she's kind of starved for that friendship, that empathy, that intimacy. Because right now, she's only really surrounded by Christian and his dumbass friends. Yeah, which, by the way, in this beautiful unveiling of Hargas, we see Mark vaping (laughs) as he, like, comes through the clearing in the woods, which I just think is so funny. 
Pele begins introducing everybody, and he introduces everybody as, like, a family member of his, almost. It's like, this is my brother, this is my sister, this is my aunt, this is my... So you could tell that there's perhaps some overlapping familial ties, or you get a sense of that. Well, it's also very culty. Like, isn't that the way it was in that, like, Jim Jones cult? That they always kind of, like, referred to themselves as, like, brother this, sister that. Well, and actually that comes up... I don't know if it came up right before this or later in the movie... But Pele mentioned something along the lines of, like, Americans are really concerned about what is theirs and what is not theirs, where we don't have ownership here. Like, we are all each other's. Mm -hmm. Like, I was, you know, when my parents died, I was openly embraced. I never had to worry that I was not held. They're very concerned with ownership, and they are not. So... It could be that there are overlapping familial ties or that, yes, they don't see themselves as being distinct families within this community. And we are introduced to some children playing a game called Skin the Fool, which is a pretty morbid sounding game. Shortly after those introductions, they're shown where they're going to be sleeping and it's inside of this barn, which people in the spring stage of their life, which is age zero to three, 36 are required to sleep. So we don't see family households here. We see kind of group households. And shortly after getting here and sort of setting everything down, we see Pele sort of sit next to Danny and give her a drawing of herself because it is her birthday. Mm-hmm. It's a nice conversation. And she informs him, you know, this is lovely, but, you know, Christian forgot. That's okay. I didn't remind him. Yeah, I forgot to remind him. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, she's blaming it on the fact that the sun never went down Mm -hmm. and and all that kind of stuff. But we see her going and looking at pictures of the May Queens on the wall because it is a tradition that during every ceremony, a new May Queen is crowned through a dance competition. And that person is kind of seen as royalty until the next ceremony and she's supposed to bless their crops and stuff like that but while she is looking at all of these may queens all of these powerful influential women of this community you see in the background pele informing christian that he fucked up and christian being like fuck yeah Mm -hmm. and somewhere in here like as exploration sort of continues we are introduced to this really bizarre tapestry that is read from right to left and it introduces a love story of a woman who falls in love with a man so she concocts this love potion by baking her pubic hair into a meat pie or maybe is there meat in it i think just some kind of pie like a savory pie. And then he eats it and washes it down with a beverage garnished with her own menstrual blood. And then that sort of acts as a love spell for him to fall in love with her. And they are together happily ever after. Very strange. The pictures, something about the pictures feels more disturbing than the story. I don't know. Those like images felt so weird. This becomes relevant later because you come to find that a member of the community, Maya, has taken a liking to Christian, thinks he's very cute. You get the sense that she is a little younger than him. She, like, playfully kicks him while she's running by him while playing Skin the Fool. And later in the movie, Christian finds a rune under his bed. Mm-hmm. And Pele confirms that it is a love rune. And it is also meant to establish that someone is trying to win over another person's affection by placing a love spell on them. Mm-hmm. So that ceremony or that tapestry that 
is being depicted to us becomes a little more relevant later. And somewhere in this time where we see this tapestry, Christian has found a way to get his hands on a piece of like a bunt cake. <laughs> <laughs> I was really like, where the fuck did he get this pound cake? From? I have no idea. Like some kind of fruit cake situation with like a single candle. Which where did he get that candle? That's what I want to know. And um, he pulls. Danny out of the little barn and says, hey, like, can I talk to you for a second? Pulls this cake out from behind his back. Happy birthday. Tries to light the candle. Cannot get this candle lit. It gave <laughs> me very, like, Rent vibes where it's like, will you light my candle? Oh. And he can't light her candle. <laughs> oh, yeah. That is so symbolic. The idea, especially on TikTok lately, a lot of these, like, match stories have been popping up. Like, have you ever seen the thing where, like, I guess if you do some kind of, I don't want to call it a ritual, but maybe a ritual or some kind of, not ceremony, some kind of like thing. If you put matches next to each other and like set intentions where one represents a person, the other represents a person and you burn them, the way that they burn next to each other is supposed to tell you about the connection between the people they represent. So, of course, if the flame goes out, you know, that's like a diminished love connection if the flame keeps going. But that's such a good point. He cannot even get the flame started. Eventually, she's just like, stop. (laughs) Just like, stop. It's okay. (laughs) But she kind of calls him out and says, I thought you forgot or didn't you forget? And he lies. He straight up lies. And he says, no, I didn't forget. I didn't forget. But then he does end up saying he's sorry. So I guess maybe she's just kind of used to him, like, lying the first couple tries. She tries to get him to say anything and then finally kind of caving and being like, I'm sorry. So the next scene that becomes relevant is we're at a dinner scene and they are all lined up in a communal dining situation where there's a bunch of long tables that are crisscrossing into a symbol. Mm -hmm. You could tell this symbol is relevant to the members of the community and you see an old man and an old woman walk out to sit themselves at the head of the table they are dressed in blue which is distinct from everybody else in the community who is dressed in white apart from danny and crew they are dressed in their street clothes and throughout the movie are very distinct from everybody else because they are the only ones who do not look like everybody else So the older folks seat themselves at the head of the table and everyone else kind of waits on them to begin eating before they start eating. You can tell that they are either highly respected or that they are kind of in charge of this level of the process. And during this time, Mark makes eyes with his milkmaid, is is what I wrote. He keeps referring to the women of this community as milkmaids and as hot Swedish women. And you can tell that one is kind of catching his eye a little bit. And that becomes a little more relevant later. But he ends up getting tired and he's like, I'm tired. I'm going to take a nap. So he decides he's going to skip out on the ceremony that immediately follows the meal. So he leaves as these two older folks are carried to a mountaintop and they get off and they're standing. It's like a cliff face, a really, really high cliff face. And everyone is standing at the bottom looking up at them. Think Lion King. Like if we had to think about the presentation of Simba, like that is like what vibes you're getting is like. But the the, the rocks are so white. They look so clean, startlingly clean, like not what you would expect. Almost like chalky because they're so white. And, you know, there's a ceremony. The older people cut their palms at the top. They lay their hands on a stone face with some rune symbols on it. And then we see, very surprisingly, the first woman who comes to the edge of the cliff jumps and falls. And this is probably, I think, the most graphic part in the movie. We see her hit the bottom, like, full impact. And we see her head kind of explode. 
she breaks her face. Yeah. And by kind of explode, I mean fully, fully explode with the force of impact. Yeah, there is a rock positioned at the bottom of the cliff that you could tell she was perhaps aiming for. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the community members seem very untouched by this, but we are very focused, obviously, on Danny's reaction. She is very shocked like she kind of is the most calm in this situation you are hearing very faint sounds of simon and connie screaming Mm -hmm. protesting they are definitely taking it the hardest well outwardly danny is stunned into silence and we see her enter one of those moments where you can you can almost tell at this point because we've seen her sort of experiencing these triggering moments along the way we can sort of see her Almost like trying to talk to herself like, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. Maybe not even knowing what to think. Like maybe being so shocked she can't even process anything yet. And Christian's not really saying anything. Everyone's sort of, I guess Mark, who probably would have said something is off napping. So he's not even there. Josh, I think. is just taking it all in. He is. He screams originally. Like I remember in the, we were watching this with subtitles. And I remember it said like, Danny and Josh screamed. But after that, they're silent and we only hear sort of Connie and Simon freaking out. Yeah, so then it's the man's turn and the man misses the bottom rock and really just- Well, he goes feet first. Yeah, he just kind of doesn't have great form and just messes up his leg in a very horrible fashion. And he starts screaming, but the rest of the members of the community are really mirroring his scream. Like, they are screaming with him, and they are mimicking his sounds. And this is the first time of many in the movie where we really see the community members mirroring the anguish of other people. They are validating the anguish of other people by just mimicking the sounds and expressions that are coming from the person who's being focused on at that time. And it is not long before this mallet that we discussed earlier is brought out and the man's pain is put out rather swiftly. Yes. So apparently, according to the research I did and alluded to, these types of mallets are based in fact. So at this point, Christian is puking. Simon and Connie are inconsolable and saying they want to get the fuck out of here. Danny kind of walks away and begins breaking down. This is where Christian tells Josh, and Josh, who is the academic, has been very clearly invested in this journey at the start. Christian, who didn't have a thesis, tells Josh, I'm going to write my doctorate on Hargus and this community. And Josh is pissed because even though his thesis does not focus exclusively on Hargus, it focuses more on European folklore, European different traditions He is angry. He calls Christian lazy. You know, you're following in in my steps. I'm doing all of this work for you. Of course, Christian ends up saying the inevitable, like, look, dude, we can collaborate if you want, which only seems to enrage Josh even more. But Christian does what he does best, which is try to gaslight his friends. Although Josh does not take it, I think, as well as Danny does. He does, I think, call his friend out for the kind of bullshit he's giving. And then he ends up sort of walking away to blow off some steam. And I think that it's important that we kind of have Danny and Josh as foils to each other, where Josh seems to be really in control and really driven and really externally motivated. And it's taking all that Danny is to be internally motivated. Mm. And I think it's important that we are able to see Christian through these two different lenses, because otherwise we really just see 
Christian as this good guy in a bad situation mm-hmm. where, you know, he's not at fault for wanting to be out of a relationship that doesn't serve him anymore. And it is not his job to be a therapist. You know, that's fine and all, but we really do see through his actions with Josh that he doesn't seem to have any ambition or any ideas of his own. Yeah, he doesn't really seem to be aware of boundaries his own boundaries in this relationship that's not serving him, like you said, and also the boundaries in his friendships. You know, is this really the best move he can make? Like, And Josh even says, of all the things you could talk about, it's an unlimited possibility, the things you can do this thesis on, and you're choosing this, like, which you already know I've done so much research for, which you inevitably are going to use some of my research for. So while they're having this little academic chit chat, <laughs> who tries to calm Danny down but Pele? Not Christian, but Pele. Mm -hmm. So Pele finds Danny throwing her luggage together in the spring space and throwing things in her bag. And she's like, listen, like, I respect your culture, but I got to get out of here. Like, this is too much for me. Like, I can't handle this. All of that kind of stuff. And Pele tries to engage her in more ways than Christian ever has. Like, he's sitting down with her, trying to engage her in conversation. He reveals now that he might have some feelings for her, saying, I was the most excited for you to be here with me, to see all of this with me. He tries to relate to her, saying, like, listen, my parents burned up in a fire. I know what loss is. I know what you're going through. But I never got the chance to feel lost. I was raised by a community who doesn't bicker over what's theirs. And that's what you deserve. Mm -hmm. So, again, kind of talking about this idea that she seems justifiably (laughs) wrapped up in her losses, but isn't finding that level of community that he was able to have to be able to be a relatively well-adjusted human being and he is trying to offer that to her through her involvement in this experience and then he kind of challenges christian's role in her life he asks her do you feel held by him does he feel like home to you Mm. that's a beautiful question the way that that's phrased is really beautiful pele is very poetic he's very charming he's got like dreamy eyes and like long flowy hair very old soul yes And of course, in comparison to some of the other immature characters that we see, he looks like a shining star. And the answer to whether she feels held by Christian is answered in a dream that she has that night, where she dreams that the boys have snuck out of the spring house and have driven away in the night, leaving her there in the community while she's just left to scream and billow black smoke out of her mouth, which presumably is a nod to her sister's death. Which also is confirmed through a bunch of dreamy flashbacks to her sister and her parents being at the foot of the cliff that the old people Mm. just perished at. They wake up the next morning. This is where a love rune is found under Christian's bed. So we are to presume that this is from Maya, the girl that's kind of had this crush on him from afar. And then all hell breaks loose when Mark pees on a tree and Simon is nowhere to be found. Yeah, so people are not happy that Mark pees on a tree. Apparently, the tree is supposed to be connected to their elders. Their elders. And then Connie is irritated. She keeps being told by one of the other members of the community that Simon has gone to the airport ahead of her because there are only two seats in the car, the driver and the passenger. So the driver needs to come back for Connie, and she's going to meet Simon at the airport. She doesn't believe it. She grabs her stuff. She walks off screen. 
And Danny sees this and she, you know, you can tell that she's puzzled, right? She doesn't believe that even in the short time she's known Connie and Simon that he would leave without her. They were engaged, you know, kind of attached at the hip the whole time. Not really something that he would do. But before she can really get involved with anything, she's asked to help make meat tarts for (laughs) for the coming dinner. So we start seeing her sort of becoming, I guess, invited into certain processes of this community with the women. And we can see that she starts becoming sort of friendly with some of these women around the community. And this is where we're introduced to Ruben. Ruben is a interpreter of the gods he's like an oracle of sorts he's meant to be a a wise pure interpreter like you said yeah so ruben doesn't speak you could tell that ruben has some developmental delays he is and the community admits to this he is a process of inbreeding yep because for this oracle to be an oracle. They believe that, you know, there needs to be a pure bloodline. La 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 la. And they say that due to his inability to communicate with the community members, it makes him unclouded by perception. So he is the direct line to the ancestors and the gods. And he is presumably responsible for all of these tapestries that we see around that kind of like tell the histories of the community. You see Josh and one of the elders looking at some of the writings that Ruben has produced. And Josh is obviously very interested in this history due to his thesis. He asks if he can take photographs. The elder gets very offended and says, no, this is our sacred texts. But you could tell that Josh really wants this information for his project. But while they are having this discussion, you hear screaming in the background. It's like the scream heard around the community. But the only people that react to it are the outsiders, like our Danny and Mark. Like, they seem to be the only people that hear the scream. Everyone else just really goes on like nothing happens. That's such a good point. And they don't let it become a thing. And I think, honestly, like, this is my second or third time watching the movie. And I don't even remember hearing the scream the first couple times because it's played off in such a way where... Don't worry about it, but Mm -hmm. you can presume that Connie has met some element of her demise here. Yeah. Perks of subtitles. You see the scream Mm -hmm. before you even hear it sometimes. So dinner comes around and we see this shot of this beautiful dinner table. So beautiful. They have these long tables and these symbols and white tablecloths and this perfectly set dishes and cups. Everyone's drinking this lemonade looking concoction. And we see that um, right away. Christian's lemonade looks a little bit more strawberry than everybody <laughs> else's. <laughs> and pie is served to everyone, and Christian pulls out like a little short hair from his mouth. Mark right away is like, dude, those are pubes. <laughs> like, I feel like that would not be my first instinct to say that's a pubic hair. But Mark, you know, this is probably one of the times where his immaturity is actually spot on. I mean, it is a, quite a curly hair. It, it could be like a beard hair, though. You know what I mean? I feel like beards are just like facial pubes. No, I love a beard. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it is facial pubes if you look at it that way. (laughs) While this is happening, Danny and Christian are also having a conversation where they talk about how weird it is that Simon left Connie and Danny. This is kind of like the first bite we see from her. You know, Christian just kept saying, I'm sure it was just a miscommunication. And Danny's like, I could see you possibly doing that. 
Yeah, that is such a good point. Like, maybe this is where we can start seeing sort of a character shift from her. And we can see, like, in the staging that she's thinking about saying that for a little while before she says it. But she does say it. Maybe that's a moment where she's going to start to sort of speak her mind a little bit more instead of trying to avoid conflict, avoid confrontation, like her usual instinct is to do. This is where Mark disappears with the milkmaid. Yeah, he's excited. She kind of beckons him very flirtatiously away. And uh, he disappears for a little bit. So we cut to that night and Josh has sneaking out to... Sneaking? Sneaking. 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 <laughs> Snuckin'. It's perfect, yes. Snacking. He has left the spring slash summer house. I feel like I'm talking about like a TikTok house, like the hype, like... Like, you know how, how they, like, name houses now? No. It's, like, a bunch of influencers live together, and they, like, call it, like, the Hype House, or they call oh it, God, like, that sounds like, the Sway House. The, like, part two of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> but a cult. Cult two. <laughs> you imagine, like, TikTokers at this midsummer festival? It reminds me of the Fire Festival. A little bit. Uh. So, next scene, it is nighttime, or eternal evening right because it doesn't get fully dark here and it's time to go to bed danny asks josh for another sleeping pill we you know we know she's having trouble sleeping which i thought was interesting because she has such horrible dreams the night before and she wanted a sleeping pill again well it's also interesting to think about just in general how often people are under the influence of something else at this place Mm -hmm. because it's obvious okay they start by taking mushrooms and then with every meal they're taking like a toast and it's presumed that there is something in the toast, mm-hmm. whether it's like LSD or some sort of microdose of something. And Danny is taking sleeping pills every night. So we don't necessarily see in the day-to-day happenings that people are actively not sober. But I think it's interesting to see that at every turn, she is avoiding <laughs> being alone with her thoughts or, or yeah. being just there and whatnot. Josh sneaks off to take pictures of the scriptures that Ruben was making earlier, and he is taking pictures with his flash on in a very dark temple, so (laughs) he is very easily spotted, and he looks behind him and sees what looks like Mark standing behind him. And Without pants on. No pants on? Yeah! You could see, like, he's, he's, like, poo bear in it. Oh, really? Yeah! I did not notice that at all. I'm pretty sure, yeah, he's, you could see, like, it's pantsless person, pantsless Mark, it looks like. And he says, Mark, like, you scared me. I'm not supposed to be in here. Like, don't. But then the person comes closer and we see it doesn't quite look like Mark. Well, it does, but it's Mark's face on another face. And before Josh can even react or fully process, he's hit over the head. With the mallet? With the mallet. Maybe a smaller mallet? Because his skull isn't completely crushed, but he kind of lies on the floor. He starts bleeding out. He's trying to mumble. Perhaps he was hit in such a way he can't speak. He can't do anything. And then he's dragged away. And we assume that he's dead. But it's also revealed that, yeah, Mark's face is on somebody's face. So at this point, we are missing Simon, Connie, Mark, and Josh. Yeah, really quick. Yeah. I think it's really easy to think that these people in this community are just kind of like after them. But they had also mentioned that kind of like the way that they keep their community going is by bringing in new blood. Yeah. And so they don't really have any motivation to kill outsiders, except except in smaller numbers. Mm -hmm. But... All of these people have disrespected their customs in some way, right? So Simon and Connie were the most 
outspoken and borderline disruptive of the sacred ceremony of the elders passing. Mark peed on the sacred tree and Josh explicitly disobeyed one of the elders and took photos. So we see that there is an element of retribution to disrespecting a lot of these traditions that are held sacred. But the next morning, people notice that Mark and Josh are gone. But the elders also announced that the texts are also missing. Yeah, so really quickly, Christian kind of throws Josh under the bus. He's like, I haven't seen Mark and Josh. Like, I bet that they did it, blah, 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 blah. And so then that's kind of how those missing people are explained. Um, And of course, at this point, it is also explained that Connie has left to be taken to the airport with Simon. So everything is being explained so far. And it's at this time Danny is roped into the Mayflower ceremony. She is given some drug tea. She kind of gets set up with these girls and she is put into a nice white frock with her own rune symbols on her chest. Which, a flower crown. Yeah, flower crown. Very pretty. And she's just kind of going with the flow. Meanwhile, Christian is summoned to speak with Inga, the sort of, again, matriarchal person in this society. And she asks him about Maya and tells him that he has been approved to mate with her. So we know that she's responsible for this strawberry lemonade, this pubic hair. And also we saw that she was one that put the love rune under his bed. And he is just kind of like, he's very confused. He is an ideal astrological match. Which we love an ideal astrological match. But sometimes horoscopes are not right, okay? But we don't really get to see his reaction. He is bewildered and leaves the temple feeling bewildered. Um, I feel like this is where Christian finally like is sort of forced to start actually having thoughts about what's going on. Yeah. Like before, he's just kind of accepting what's happening. Now you can just see in his face he's not comfortable and this is not okay with him. <laughs> him and Danny really trade places because I noted that this is the first time we see Danny fighting through her anxiety because you could tell she has also been drugged to participate in this dancing competition and she's bonding with the other women. Part of the dance moves involves her holding hands with them and like spinning in circles with them. She's very disoriented. But every other time we've seen Danny get anxious, she removes herself from the situation, mm-hmm. right? Like in the apartment, she goes into the bathroom. In the airplane, she goes into the bathroom. After the elder ceremony, she kind of walks off by herself crying and then walks off to her room crying. This is the first time that we see her confronting that anxiety and pushing through it, Mm. where this is the first time we see Christian confronting that there is anxiety at all Mm. and succumbing to it. He is also given some drug tea a little against his will. Yeah, a woman sort of gives him this little cup. He originally denies it, you know. What's this going to do? Is it, You know, I'm afraid I'm going to have a bad trip. But she says he's not and he takes it. So meanwhile, while Danny is thriving and dancing and having so much fun, Christian commences on another drug trip. But this time it's not it's not as innocent. And it is sad because Danny is continuously advancing in rounds for this dance competition. And she just keeps looking for Christian's approval. And he is like staring at the ground and not engaged whatsoever in what she's doing. So even when she is thriving and when she is succeeding, he doesn't care. And I think that speaks to the idea of 
maybe if I'm better, maybe if I'm happy, I keep dragging him down with my shit and then he'll love me if I'm happy and if I'm okay. But we're seeing that she's succeeding. Like in this instance, like she is happy. She is smiling. She is having the time of her life. And Christian still isn't looking at her. And she ends up winning. She wins the Mayflower competition. Even though she's like super drugged, she is very happy. And the happier she is, it seems like the more Christian is struggling. These drugs are not sitting well with him. And eventually he's given more drugs. So while the Mayflower celebration continues and Danny gets Mayflower her, her, what? Mayflower Oh my God, I keep thinking Mayflowers because of the pilgrims. Where are the settlers? <laughs> Where are the settlers? I'm sorry about it. The Maypole, what is Queen. it? May Queen. Oh my God. I, have I been calling it Mayflower the whole time? I I don't think so. Because in my head, that's what I've been thinking the whole time. I mean, they are wearing flowers and it is not May. It's actually June, but... Damn. <laughs> Whatever. You guys know what I mean, right? So the May Queen celebration continues. Danny's crown is upgraded. It's not just a crown. It has like a handle on top, like a basket. <laughs> and she is sort of taken to bless the fields in this ceremonial, what looks to be like a crop blessing where they bury some meat, eggs, and grain in the ground. But not before she gets a mouth smooch from Pele. Oh, yeah. She gets a mouth smooch. Like a big old mouth smooch. Um, very, very nice. And she even has her turn, like, controlling the table where they have a oh. meal together. And she's the one who, like, picks up the silverware. And now everyone's looking at her and everyone's engaged with her. And, yes, very shortly before she's taking the bless the crops, she even asks, can Christian come with me? And she's told no. Yeah, so as she's off blessing the crops, we see Christian sort of being escorted away and prepared for something else. He's given his own robe with his own rune symbol on it, which is an upward pointing arrow, which I guess is something for masculinity. He's going to have an upward pointing arrow very soon. Yes. And then he's taken into the room and there we see Maya. She's on a beautiful bed of flowers surrounded by naked elder women. Who are um, swaying. (laughs) Who are swaying. And Christian is brought into the room and he begins having sex with Maya in this very ritualistic sex thing. (laughs) This is where I'd like to remind everybody that while Christian is hanging dong and there is a full missionary sex scene surrounded by upwards of 10 naked aging women that I saw this movie in theaters with my grandparents. (laughs) Wow. That is all. That's your grandparents are cool though. They're cool, but there's some things you don't need to see. And then, of course, the women start moaning as Maya is moaning. So there's a very, this very... Mirror, again, that mirroring that they do. Yeah, so even, we've seen that happen before with pain. Now we're seeing it sort of with this, like, pleasure aspect. Christian, again, super drugged. Sad to watch because it's not... Oh, yes, it is. Definitely is, I would say, considered rape. Uh, li- uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of, definitely yeah. like he's so on drugs. At this point, I think he's been given at least two doses of very strong drugs. I'm not sure what kind of drugs they are. And of course, he's he's being like put into these situations, put into these situations. And, you know, you have a group of people around him. 
So anyway, he's doing this thing. It's very bizarre. There's also some comedic elements. Um, <laughs> like when he is allowed to finish, a woman comes behind him and sort of squeezes his butt cheeks. <laughs> and pushes him in. Yes. And he finishes. But not before Danny gets back from her crop blessing. Hears a noise. Goes to investigate and sees Christian participating in the ceremony. And this is where we don't see the conversation happening between Inga and Christian in their meeting. So this is where I come into question that like, obviously, like he can't consent because he's under the influence of a lot of drugs. I'm not putting that into question whatsoever. But is this his out? If he can meaningfully contribute to this community, and if he's doing his thesis on this thing, and if he is specifically being asked by the elders of this community to mate with Maya... Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Also, we've seen him sort of make a couple of cognizant, questionable decisions that might hurt Danny's feelings, like plan this trip, forget, not make the decision to forget her birthday, but not put forth the mental energy to remember her birthday. So it's like, is it also his his out with Danny? Like, what if she does say maybe it can be kind of like something to stand on? Maybe that will make her end it with him. He also has passively expressed interest in Maya. Yes. Just in the terms of like looking at her at dinner and just some longing stares and things of that nature. So there was an element of intrigue at the very least. Yes. And even his friends at the dinner in the very beginning of the movie kind of telling him, oh, we're going to, you know, sleep with so many Swedish girls, impregnate them, which becomes eerily relevant because after he finishes, Maya like rolls around in a fetal position and is like, I can feel the baby, (laughs) which is so fucking weird. (laughs) This sobers him up real fast. Yeah. He gets up, runs off into the field. Blood on his penis because she was a virgin. Yes. And he ends up running around trying to seek refuge. And the shed that he seeks refuge in, I thought this was visually both disturbing but cool looking. uh You see Simon's body is strung from the ceiling. He is without eyeballs, but there are sunflowers in his eyes and his lungs are still functioning, but they look like wings almost. So he looks like he is like a flighted creature and his lungs are being inflated and deflated outside of his body as he is hung from this ceiling. I actually looked into this because I watched the, and I told you this already, the the Dead Meat podcast, and they talked a little bit about this part and how perhaps it was Christian still tripping, which is what made him think Mm, that the mm -hmm. lungs were still inflating and deflating. But there's also noise. You can also hear breathing. And apparently this is another quote unquote realistic element of this movie because this is a type of like torture called the blood eagle that dates back to like viking times where people were mutilated in this way so that they would be living for a little bit like this interesting even though it feels so crazy to imagine apparently that was a, a torture method It's interesting that we see what happens to Simon versus we don't really see whatever happens to Connie, right? True. And not that it necessarily matters. I wouldn't compare the reaction of Simon and Connie as one is more egregious than the other in terms of like their disapproval of the customs. 
But it's interesting that we get like an off screen thing with Connie, but we're really focused in on this like exploitation of the guy's body. Hmm. I don't know. Like, not that there's anything like to that, but you do see it is a matriarchal society there because there does seem to be more women than men and the elder boss lady is a woman. True. That's a very good point. Yeah. So here Christian is discovered and he is drugged again. It's like with some kind of powder that's blown in his face. Yes. He wakes up and we get a cool camera shot of half of the screen being lit up and then the other half of the screen by his eyelids being opened manually. And he is told by a member of the community, you can't speak, you can't move, just relax. And this is where we are at the final ceremony of the Midsummer tradition or the Midsummer celebration. And This is where we get the ceremony called the Deity of Reciprocity. And this says that every midsummer celebration, they give nine human lives, four new bloods, four of their own, and one that is chosen by the May Queen. So this is kind of where we get to take inventory of all the people that have passed so far. So in terms of like the new bloods, we have Simon, Connie, Mark, and Josh. They are all dead. They're the new blood numbers. Four of the own. You get the two old people. I assumed that it was the same two old people because they were sacrificed. And then Engmar, who is Pele's brother or friend, volunteers himself. And then a guy named Oaf. We don't know Oaf. And we see Danny in her floral mound and her even more excessive floral crown. So this has been memed to death. Like yes. I've seen many Halloween costumes of the May Queen. Yes. And she sits on her throne and she looks kind of miserable. We had previously seen her in a, in a scene crying with some of the other women. Again, oh, yeah. weird emotions. She's crying. They're crying with her. Another moment that is memed to death. And now she kind of sits. She looks pretty hollow having experienced such intense emotions. And she's given the choice. Should she make the ninth offering Christian? Or should she make the ninth offering one of the community's own, which is drawn at random, very lottery style, very Hunger Games style? And we don't see her make her decision, but the next scene cuts to a bear that we had seen previously a couple times, a couple different capacities, like image-wise, and also Mm -hmm. the, the literal bear that was caged is being prepared, and Christian is put into the bear. He sort of comes to inside of this yellow building that we had seen off screen It's a big A-frame building, very, like, striking. It kind of, like, whenever they showed it, it reminded me of, like, a Wes Anderson film because it was very, like, it was very yellow, sort of, like, kitschy looking, but they would always show it centered on the screen. I feel like Wes Anderson's very into, like, parallel shots and very vibrant colors. It wasn't funny or lighthearted because Christian wakes up inside. He is inside the bear body, surrounded by these sort of scarecrowified bodies of his friends and also some other folks from the town. And the building is caught on fire. Yes. So this really gives us context to Pele saying that both of his parents perished in a fire. So it's presumed that Pele's parents were either sacrifices or had volunteered to have their bodies given in reverence to this deity of reciprocity. So we see everybody perish one by one in this fire. Danny looks very upset 
the crowd is mirroring the screams of the two alive folks that have sacrificed themselves. Danny is wailing and coughing at the sight of Christian dying. And I wrote, like, it's more validation than she's ever seen from Christian, like this entire community that's mirroring her suffering. And that's like saying, like, yeah, you have a reason to be upset. You're If you're upset, I'm upset. Like, this makes sense to me. But... You know, as time goes on, you see her sorrow kind of turn into a smirk. She straightens up a little more strengthened and satisfied with the outcome. And it's just the idea that even though all of the people that she came with are gone, she's revered here and she's found a new family and a new home. And she's very happy about that. We have that iconic smile at the end and that's it. That's the movie. So a couple things I want to talk about. I want to talk a little bit about runes because I thought that they were interesting. So according to worldhistory.org in an article titled Runes, appropriately, <laughs> by Emma Groenfeld, runes are letters in the runic alphabets of Germanic-speaking peoples written and read most prominently from at least 160 CE onwards in Scandinavia and in Elder Futhark script and the Younger Futhark, which illuminated the Viking Age. In England, runes were in use from the 5th century until perhaps the turn of the 11th century, while in Scandinavia, the use of runes extended well into the Middle Ages and beyond. The origins of the runic script are shrouded in a decent amount of mystery. The earliest inscription that is without a doubt runic is the one reading Harja, possibly meaning comb or warrior, and that is spelled H-A-R-J-A which is literally one letter difference from Harga, which is H-A-R-G-A. And I thought that that was crazy. And those runes were so mature that scholars felt that they were at least like 100 years old when they were written. So this is a language that's been around for a while. And I thought it was just interesting that the first rune discovery is so similar to the word of the town, that of not the town, I guess the community that yeah. they're in. Yeah, for sure. And also in the in the article titled, all the hitting meanings you may have missed in Midsummer Ending from Insider. Writers Chris Snyder and Meredith Gingham Briner assert that certain runes mean certain things. And that's where we kind of get into those theories about the runes on the robe, like Christian's robe, that sign of masculinity, Danny's robe, that sign of sort of rebirth or self-discovery, and based on some of those runes that we see there. Runes on the walls, and also the way the bodies are staged. Like we have Mark's body, for example, is, you know, we see him associated with this idea of being a fool or a foolish person. We see him staged as a fool. Ooh, skin the fool. Skin the fool. Ah. Mm -hmm. And then Josh kind of serving as this stereotype as a scholar and some of the runes that are in the background of certain shots that he's in. And the way the tables are organized, that rock that those two older folks put their bloody hands on before they commit that ritualistic suicide. So these runes are just so, such an important part of this movie. And I thought that it was interesting to talk a little bit about them. And then finally, from that same article, there is an interesting theory so, again, Snyder and Gingham Briner assert that while Danny's family seemed to die in a murder-suicide, what if it was actually a setup? Next to her parents' bed was a crown of flowers, and there are similar yellow flowers on their wallpaper, too, a mysterious bit of foreshadowing. What if, say, Pele killed Danny's family to trigger the series of events that led her to the festival? He does emphasize that he was most looking forward to Danny coming along on the trip, 
more than anyone else. Whether or not Danny was chosen by Pele, there are some other hints that she was always a perfect candidate for May Queen. One is her birthday, which Pele is well aware coincides with the beginning of the festival. Danny is in her mid-twenties, which is significant because, as Pele explains, his community thinks of one's life in terms of season. Okay, here it is. The first 16 years of life are equivalent to one season, spring. Danny is midway through her next season, summer. So literally midsummer. Regardless of the impetus for Danny's journey, the movie comes full circle by the end, beginning with the deaths of her family and ending with the death of Christian. And as Aster says, quote, you start with the unfathomable and you end with the unfathomable. But I don't know. I think I would argue that the connections between the death of Danny's family and the events that come almost assert like a very discomforting feeling of fate. It is interesting, though, because on this turn, I did notice the sunflowers at the bedside. And I thought that was interesting. And I don't know that we saw it together when we watched the movie this time. But I do know when Danny is processing to bless the crops, if you look in the background of the trees, you see her sister in the trees, mm-hmm. like like the, her face in the tube. So it's almost interesting that these symbols like exist in nature in this thing like obviously it was a lot more pronounced when she was like in the outhouse taking the trip for the first time but now it's almost like why is it even still present here or is it that like it's just kind of fading into the background of her life now it's getting further away from her where it's like it's not like a face in a mirror anymore it's becoming just part of nature and it's just part of like how she's healing and all of that kind of stuff she's growing from it So you're right. I don't think Pele set up the death of Danny's family because you don't see an investment in Danny from Pele prior to the death. But it's almost a little more predatory because we're set up to really like Pele as a character. But you do see that once he learns her birthday and that she's expressed this level of great loss that he really kind of does zero in on her and become a lot more intentional with her. If you think about a stereotype of like who's perfect for a cult or something Mm -hmm. like that, it's somebody who's experienced a lot of loss or doesn't have a lot of things on the outside. So it's interesting to kind of pick that apart. Yeah. So that's all I have here with the sort of additional research, which kind of feels like in a lot of ways, it leaves me with more questions. But I enjoyed this movie. I wasn't as disturbed as I thought I was going to be, but I also went into it having done a decent amount of reading, so I wasn't going to be too blindsided because I was so nervous about the sort of psychological impact because I just heard this film was so disturbing and it left a lot of people with a really icky feeling, (laughs) which I was nervous for. But I liked it. I thought it was so intentional, which made it a really interesting artistic piece to look at. Yeah, I mean, you really have to think about what about the movie is horrifying. And, you know, like I said before, is it the fact that it's an ethnocentric thing where we are looking at these practices as horrific or we're looking at what Danny's going through as horrific? You could really tell that this is was cathartic for Ari Aster and really kind of just more about human experience than making Go, setting out to make us uncomfortable. If you watch Hereditary. I'm so scared. I'm not ready. That one is most definitely more dark but also really harkens in on like the matriarchal effect of like bloodline and things that run in the family like curses that are hereditary and it's definitely 
definitely much more disturbing and much more frightening than this is. But yeah, I truly, really do, you know, like this movie. And even if it's not capital H horror or doesn't (laughs) seem like capital H horror, I think it's pretty well revered in the community for kind of just being a different breath of fresh air because it's hard to be scary when it's like colorful and bright out and like, Mm -hmm. like you have to work twice as hard. And I think he did a really good job. And Florence Pugh, obviously, did oh. a fantastic job just emoting and mm-hmm. really just dragging us over the coals with her. Mm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I feel like anything she's in next, I, I'm going to want to see just because it's her. So that's Midsummer. Yeah. Ah! But yeah, you know, part of the reason we did this movie was because it was requested. So if there are movies you would specifically like us to cover and talk about, definitely feel free to send it our way. You can follow us on Instagram, also at The Horrors Podcast, and send us your suggestions there if that's easier for you. Also, follow us there so you can get some updates about what we're doing, little sneak peeks into our episodes when we advertise them. It's a a pretty decent page, I'd say. And if you have movie recommendations that you would like us to cover, definitely feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. Yes. 100%. All right. Until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.